Welcome back, everyone, to another week of Schizophrenic Reads. This week, we are joined by author of Leg, The Story of a Limb and the Boy Who Grew From It, a memoir by Greg Marshall. Greg Marshall, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. I really enjoyed your book, and I can't wait to talk to you about about what you wrote. Thanks, Nathan. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, if you would, um, would you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself? Um, I know you grew up in Salt Lake City, and that's where the book starts, but you have been kind of all over the place, and I would just love just a little bit about like where, where you're at now and what you're doing. Sure. Um, I am a married gay man, uh, and we have a dog named Zeus that's a 20-pound Cavalier King Charles, very adorable tricolor uh, dog. He's like living with a little animatronic uh, <laughs> like toy from Disneyland. We think that he's made of cake, but as far as we know, he's an actual real dog, <laughs> and his poofs would suggest that yes, he is. Yeah. <laughs> um, we uh, live in Austin, Texas. I'm from Salt Lake City, like you said. I'm one of five children, the, the middle child. And so I'm kind of the, um, I always forget if it's Jan or Marsha Brady, but I'm like the unremarkable middle child in my family. Um, (laughs) Not the super hot charismatic one, but like the one that everybody forgets about. Um, (laughs) And yeah, and so two older siblings, two younger siblings. Uh, My mom was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma when I was in the second grade. And so that was just sort of a long running I kind of liken her to an endurance athlete. She still is alive today um, and has uh, beaten breast cancer and H. pylori and um, yeah, just all just a range of different health issues as she continues to battle non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And my dad passed away from ALS. And so really writing the book, I pulled from both of their examples. You know, my mom was really funny and charismatic and had this kind of Patch Adams humor shtick about um, her chemo treatment, especially like she would, she was the patient who would show up in a coconut bra and a hula skirt (laughs) and, you know, try to make like a joke of it or, or wear those glasses that the eyeballs are on springs to try to make her, you know, chemo nurses laugh. And, um, and so she was also a writer and my dad owned these small community newspapers um, in Utah, Idaho, and Washington. One of the towns was the town where Napoleon Dynamite takes place. Um, and as I get older, I know that's like a dated reference, but, um, for people who've seen that film, that was the size of community of the newspapers that my dad owned. So he wasn't like Rupert Murdoch or something. These were really like teeny tiny newspapers. And, um, my mom wrote a feature column for them called Silver Linings. And she was a journalist by trade. She'd gone to grad school and worked at, you know, daily Metro papers, but kind of in her cancer era and her mother of five era, she was more interested in writing feature stories. So the idea was that she would write newspaper articles about folks in these different communities who were battling, you know, brain tumors or liver cancer or who had had a premature child or... Um, you know, who had been through any number of, you know, like a heart transplant, any number of medical issues. Um, And so as the column evolved, it became more and more about my mom's battle with cancer and kind of about our family. And so she would even write some about me and my leg, but without ever saying that I have cerebral palsy. And I was diagnosed with cerebral palsy at 18 months in infancy, just like, you know, most folks with CP. But growing up, my parents just told me I had tight tendons and kind of left it at that. So their idea was to just treat it more like 
almost like an injury, like a mm-hmm. pulled hamstring or something versus a disability. So I had all of the trappings of, you know, treatment for CP. I've had hamstring and Achilles tendon releases um, on both sides. And I've, um, you know, done physical therapy through my, throughout my childhood. But I never identified as a person with a disability, if that makes sense. So it wasn't until I was 30 years old and living here in Austin, I'd gone to the MFA writing program at the University of Texas and had graduated and was looking for private health insurance for the first time in my life. And, you know, so I was applying and I get a call from the insurance agent who says, you know, what is the source of your traumatic brain injury? Like, I see that you've had these surgeries and this physical therapy, you know, what's behind all of this? And I was like, a traumatic brain injury? Like, what are you talking about? And so I had my childhood medical records pulled from primary children's where I had been a patient as a child in Salt Lake City. And sure enough, there on every single page were sentences like, to whom it may concern, Greg Marshall has spastic cerebral palsy related to prematurity. And so it was kind of this light bulb moment where I finally had a term that just described the kind of magnitude of what I'd been through. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I had a, a happy childhood and, you know, there was always a lot going on and I, um, you know, was into theater and I played tennis and um, I was even my high school student body president, like somehow. <laughs> I'm positive that it was rigged now that I look back on it. Um, you were stuffing but... the ballot, we know. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Um, and so it made me really rethink so much of what I'd been through in my childhood and kind of what I th- had thought of as these sort of funny, light coming-of-age stories, like being a closeted gay kid who was obsessed with The Wizard of Oz (laughs) and who got to meet an actor who had played a munchkin in the original MGM musical. You know, an instance like that that I talk about in the book went from being this kind of funny little tale to being more of a confrontation with my disability. Um, Like, here I was, you know, a 10- or 11-year-old kid who... Um, had cerebral palsy and, you know, walked with a limp. And I was meeting, you know, another, an actor who had another bodily difference that she had had to grapple with in her obviously much more successful and storied showbiz career. And so, you know, as a kid, I didn't really, I wouldn't have necessarily known why I reacted the way I did, you know, Mm -hmm. with, you know, a degree of internalized ableism is what I would call it now, like kind of being like, oh my God, well, I don't want to, I don't want to be like Margaret Pellegrini, the actor who played the munchkin. I want to be, you know, I want to be a quote, you know, real actor, but sort of not, you know, so I guess that that's just one example of something in the book, but just all of these different instances where I looked back and kind of thought, what would my life be like if I actually included my leg in the story and kind of brought my whole body and my whole self to the page and rendered my life as it actually was rather than trying to kind of hide my leg or be ashamed of it or just kind of like not talk about it. Yeah. For me, I had this like kind of sudden like realization, like the reading process of this, that there's probably so much emotional kind of resonance that someone... especially like people newly diagnosed with like autism or ADHD in adulthood, which, you know, because the internet is becoming such more of like a prevalent experience that people will 
kind of like renegotiate their entire growing up years and and try and like bring about an understanding to what they were experiencing as a teenager and early adult and like try and puzzle piece together, you know, like the identity of being disabled or neurodivergent or kind of whatever label they would like to place on themselves with like a reckoning that probably everyone around them knew something was off and then we just didn't have like either good medical treatment or medical honesty to some sense. And so the story of having that happen with cerebral palsy is kind of, I think in some sense, like it's a really profound reckoning with that because that would not be a scenario that you would think of. Like that is it probably a very unique approach to living with cerebral palsy is not learning totally about it until you're 30, even though you've lived with it for decades. Yeah, it was it was an emperor has no clothes moment where Mm -hmm. it was, you know, I'm visibly disabled and, you know, have always walked with a limp. So it's not like I had an invisible disability. Um, So it was this funny perception shift where, you know, suddenly I was just seeing what other people had always seen, you know, so it's not like it was a I mean, you know, when I was going through those medical records, I mean, some of them were to like my, you know, written to my high school to excuse me from high school PE. So it was sort of like even the secretary of my high school knew that I had (laughs) cerebral palsy, but I didn't, you know? And so I think it's, I think it's kind of, I think as we sort of start to become hopefully a less ableist society and people find more empowerment and community through labels, it's almost like this form of queer theory or literary criticism where you can kind of just, it's like pick a frame, you know, like Mm. pick a, you know, I think people are trying to find ways, just different ways to see what they've been through or, or, you know, what they've reckoned with. And I think for me, it was, is really comforting to kind of come to a place where I'm like, okay, you know, I have, I have this diagnosis that I can use as a tool to understand myself. And, you know, cerebral palsy can manifest really differently in different people. And I'm, you know, that's so true of so many different conditions. But I think it really can be, you know, similar, I think, in some ways to gay pride and coming out of that closet. It can be such a useful, you know, coming out of the closet can be just such a useful tool for finding community and really, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that doctors and the medical establishment can only take you so far. And especially with something like CP where, you know, you hit the age of 18 and your doctors are kind of like, hey, like you're done, you know, like you're walking, we've given you surgeries, we've given you physical therapy. I literally have had an orthopedic specialist in adulthood tell me, oh my gosh, you're doing great. Come back when you're, you know, your hip or your knee goes out because then we can do something for you. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sort of like, you know, I, and that was after I'd found out about the about CP as an adult. And I had kind of come to that orthopedic specialist with like all of this emotion. And I was like, you know, I remember like walking in front of him, you know, so that he could see me walk. And it was like a really emotional experience for me. I was mm-hmm. like reliving all of the times that I'd done that in childhood for my orthopedic surgeon back then. But for this guy, it was just like a day at the office and it was so ordinary for him. And he Mm -hmm. didn't see, you know, he didn't take a holistic approach of, well, let's talk about your overall wellness and 
you know, where do you see yourself in five or 10 years as you continue to age? Or how, you know, here's a, a brochure about, you know, a CP support group or a CP pride community that you could be a part of. So I think so much of what we all have to learn is is just from each other and communicating mm-hmm. with each other. Like since the books come out, I've talked to other people with CP who are like, oh my God, like, you know, I have issues getting lost and issues with spatial reasoning. Like yeah. I always thought that had to do more with my vision than with my brain, but I guess that probably is a symptom of CP. And so, <laughs> you know, I'm, I think that all of us just, there's a lot of guesswork that goes on and a lot of, I think, you know, when we can communicate with each other, we can kind of find those puzzle pieces just to try to help understand ourselves. I think for me, so that I can show myself more grace and so that some of that like negative self-talk of saying, you know, you're incompetent, you're incapable, you can't do this is just replaced with like an explanation that's sort of like, oh, you know, your brain works a little bit different or you, you know, hey, you know, you're going to get lost because you struggle with spatial reasoning. So when you lose your car in the parking lot, don't become furious with yourself. Like just take some steps to, you know, keep track of where your car is a little bit more consciously. Make some of those, you know, what, what for other people are subconscious processes. Just think about them overtly and you probably won't lose your car in the parking lot. So it's just been little workarounds like that kind of from experimenting with myself and from just talking to other people with CP over these, you know, over the years since I've known, that's been really cool and really empowering. And I think it's kind of taken me farther than I ever could have gone alone. No, I absolutely like 100% understand that. And I think that's like kind of where the, like the disability movement, there's so much like insight that any disabled person has into another disability because there's just like unique parts of living as a disabled person that you experience. I mean, talking about having this kind of like network of, or, or even just like solo uh, relationships with people with CP, I have the kind of a very similar thing with my schizophrenia where it seems like a lot of the time when I do talks or when I'm public facing about my life with schizophrenia, it always touches on like the symptoms that are like Google search results. Like you Google, like what is schizophrenia? And there's like the five symptoms or whatever that everyone knows. But when I'm in a group chat with, you know, my friends that also have schizophrenia, we can talk about things that aren't even like, you won't even find listed in a textbook. And where we have these things that like we identify as parts of who we are and parts of our experiences that, you know, even maybe the medical system isn't totally aware of. There's something specific for me that, I sometimes feel like I have this kind of like delusion where I'm out of time, like where past and present and future, they kind of just all blend together. And I'm not really sure like when in time I am. And like, I've explained this to doctors and they're just like, notepad out. Like, that's interesting. But like, I say this to my group chat of schizophrenics and they're like, yeah, like I know exactly what you're talking about. And like, no one else does. It's just like this really unique experience that I can share with people but that also like gives me so much insight into like any other disabled person I talk to about just like the, I don't know, there's like a unique kind of introspection that you have when you've lived this life. And I felt so much like, <laughs> I think um, so many emotions reading your book because it's not just a book about like your own singular experience and the uniqueness of discovering CP later in life, but it's also the uniqueness of living in a 
a family that is also dealing with so many different disabilities and health issues. And so it's, you certainly wrote a memoir. <laughs> there's nothing, there's nothing to say against that, but you also wrote a family memoir, which I found to be mm-hmm. so absolutely moving that I think the, the part that hit me the hardest, I, I oftentimes when I do the podcast, I listen to the audiobooks and read the books back and forth just to give myself a little bit of a little bit better background in in kind of approaching the subject. But I was out in the woods and you were talking about like kind of the final moments with your dad in his journey with ALS. And yeah, I just kind of wanted to like sit down and like take those moments in and just, I think I sat for like 20, 30 minutes and just listened to the audiobook and it's so moving. And there's so many parts of your story that you kind of decenter yourself when telling this. You talk about your sister a lot. You talk about your mom and you talk about your father. I'm kind of curious, like, how the idea came about to tell their stories in conjunction with yours. Because whenever you write a memoir, you know, people in your life are always part of it. But it really seems like you gave a, a really good portion of this book over to, you know, their stories and your interpretations of their stories. And I found it to be, like, just a great way to, I don't know, tell a more complex story. Thank you so much. That's such a keen observation. I think for one, queer people are obsessed with family, whether it's, you know, blood family or chosen family, and really sorting through what those origins mean. And I think that, I don't think I did this intentionally, but I think that my other family members are just sort of mirrors of me in the book. I don't, I said, I guess I don't mean that in like a narcissistic way, but I think that each sort of represent a concept or an approach to living with disability or getting through the day. And I don't think that I consciously constructed it that way, but that's just sort of how it all happened. Um, And I think that, you know, queerness and disability in my family are sources of, of tension and strife, but they're also really sources of intimacy and connection. And I think that when I you know, kind of started writing the book in like the summer of 2013, it was still more of the fun, lighthearted, you know, just like a little romp through childhood. But I think that I, as I started to have more conversations with my family members, and I mean, I guess you could call them interviews, you know, they knew that I was writing about my life and I, you know, just wanted to talk to them so much about it. I think that they became deeper and more real to me as people. And I just saw how we'd all like leaned on each other and learned from each other. And it's a, you know, I think it's a complicated portrait of my family. I don't think that, you know, any of us come across, you know, glowing, golden, perfect people. And that would just not be true to that experience at all. But I think that we all really learn from each other. Like, I think that, you know, my mom, in her newspaper column, she made herself the hero of her own story. And she taught me to write, you know, partially by letting me, you know, contribute horror, like horrible junior high poetry to her, (laughs) you know, to her column when she needed filler. And, you know, she sort of taught me humor. And then my dad and I had these moments of real bodily communion, where when he, you know, had ALS, I came home from college uh, right after graduating and one of it was one of his caregivers. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so as a disabled person, even though I maybe wasn't quite using that word just yet, I knew 
how to care for somebody who was, you know, largely stuck in bed. Um, You know, I knew how to, you know, stretch him because I'd done physical therapy. I just knew how to sit and talk and kind of be a potted plant with him in a room in ways that I think my siblings and my mom didn't. And I think that that was because of my disability. Like I didn't need to be on an epic hike with him to, you know, talk to him about love and life and all of his different memories. And so we really started to relate to each other, not just as father and son, but just as two people with disabilities. I think that with my little sister, Mo, who um, is, you know, on the spectrum, but is less conversant or less, um, I guess, sort of less comfortable with, how do I want to say this? She's just in a different place with it all than like Mm -hmm. I am with, you know, my CP and, you know, my own neurodivergence. Um, But seeing how families can kind of take the same approach from one kid to the next. And sometimes, you know, what works for one kid, like the kind of like not telling me about CP and just sort of, you know, throwing me out there and letting, you know, having me figure it out almost as a journalist worked really well for me. How does that approach work for a different sibling who has, you know, a different, you know, collection of bodily issues or issues of neurodivergence? Like, you know, how, how is that same script going to play out, you know, in the sequel? And so I think, yeah, I think that, you know, there's that thing uh, people say that, like, no two children have the same parents because, you know, mm-hmm. they have different experiences with them. And so I think that I think that's so true of my family, you know, with five kids, it's like a lot of kids. And so from a storytelling perspective, I think layering in all of our different, you know, perspectives and interjections and versions of events can really be, can kind of just like make a fun literary soup for, you know, the reader to, uh, to sip on and try to, (laughs) you you know, and, and maybe it's not even about one single objective truth, but, you know, there always will be, you know, perspectives and differences of opinion. And I think that where the stories kind of don't match up can be really, really interesting. I think at the same time, I did want to tell a story that didn't necessarily question the nature of narrative itself, or, you know, I wasn't out there, I didn't want to write like a Maggie Smith memoir, which I, I actually haven't read yet. And I've heard wonderful things, but I just that's not quite who I am or, or what this project wanted to be. So it was really cool to have, I felt like I got to spend time with my deceased father and also time with my family and friends who are so far flung now, just because I was writing about them. So in a way they were either in the room with me or on the phone with me. And I think that, you know, keeping them close in that kind of imaginative space made the project really fun to work on, even when it was like, even when some of the things I was writing about were really hard. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it allowed us to have conversations, you know, about the decision not to tell me about CP or about how the decisions that my parents made with Mo that were more, more nuanced and more in depth, I think, than they otherwise would have been, because it was sort of not like, 
there was no indictment there. Like it, there was no, I did, you know, I was upset with my parents at first when they didn't tell me, I don't want to like gloss over that part, but also when you have the chance to talk to family members over kind of a number of years, some of that anger kind of burns away and you're left with some of the more interesting, you know, nuanced emotions, you know, that kind of linger and, and hopefully kind of linger on the page as well for the, for the reader. Well, your book is certainly like, I think it's, it's a memoir of like some form of like self-reflection because the way that, I mean, it's, it's a linear structure, but the way that it kind of goes about is there's so many revelations happening throughout it. There's, we'll get into it a little bit later, but there's kind of the, the book kind of gets going with the kind of revelation of a sex toy as a preteen. And it just continues on these like subtle little revelations that you dissect both in like a narrative storytelling, but also the like psychological implications of how you were thinking and feeling. And I think it just revolves kind of throughout the story with each of these new moments of kind of a reckoning in some sense with so many different things. And it's a really like, it's a really enjoyable process to read this book because I think it just, you hit like a flow with it and it becomes very readable. And I think there's a lot of memoirs that become like so routine, like where it's just like each chapter is, you know, it's like a week of someone's life and you're like, I know what I'm reading in the next chapter. But with yours, I just kept found, kept finding these, you know, these little revelations and these little like character moments from you and your family. And then like the developments that have there, just like, it was so fun. I do wonder though, because you're not, you don't take uh, a necessarily super, like, I would say like overly optimistic approach to writing your family at some points. Like you're very honest about like the realities of what living your life has been like. So has there been any kind of like awkwardness about having the book out in the world and like, have they read it? What did they think about it? And how has that been? They have read it. Um, I think that there was some, so many of the chapters appeared in some version uh, in literary magazines Mm -hmm. um, kind of, you know, over the years. So they'd read some version of this material over the years. So I think that kind of helped soften the blow. I think now they're all super on board and super supportive. I think books still have this cachet and this cultural power um, in our world, which is actually kind of beautiful to see, where I think people kind of revere books, even people who aren't super avid readers. So Mm. I was surprised at how much, like, my mom, for example, you know, cared about... I was like, Mm. well, mom, I've already written about all of this. That Like, this is all available online and you know in, in some form like i've i've i've, I've shared you could have this, printed this out you. and stapled it um, together you know yeah yeah exactly exactly and so i think there was a little bit of, similar i think to coming out um as both gay and disabled i think publishing a book has felt a lot like coming out because there's this you have this enormous head of steam so excited to do it it feels so right you've worked so hard for it but there's also a fear of rejection and a fear that people won't, you know, that people will shun you or that people will, you know, use this material against you. And I think I've been really encouraged by how supportive everybody in my world has been. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. like, we're still the family that's portrayed in that book. So, you know, like, you know, my brother who has been really wonderful was like, 
hey, like, so I love this book, but do you see me as just like a giant homophobe? Is that like who I am to you? And I was sort of like, well, no, you know, I'm, I was talking about my kind of sexual coming of age. And so you were the straight brother. And so there was like a natural tension there. Yeah. Not so much even between him and me, but between uh, like a queer kid in, you know, a somewhat homophobic society of Salt Lake City. So like, was it really even about him? You know, he was like, well, you know, could you put more good stuff in there about, you know, me being like your ally? I was like, well, no, I mean, this is already kind of how it is, but not, not a bad point on his part, you know, of, you know, you, I had, I had thought, and I still believe that I'd written a story with so much love about my family that was just really honest. And that was Mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, if you make it all internalized, homophobia or internalized ableism that's just not the world that we actually live in and that's not the you know kind of like the 90s 2000s salt lake city that i grew up in i mean there was lots of love and support but there also was homophobia and ableism and so i thought i just felt like as long as i was hardest on myself and always was you know made myself complicit in so much of the ableism, so much of the homophobia. I mean, so much of it is coming from me Mm -hmm. as a person who doesn't, you know, is living in, you know, in a world that's homophobic and ableist. And so I I thought as long as I was hardest on myself and kind of made myself the biggest asshole in the book, (laughs) um, it was sort of okay to really kind of go there. And it just felt really weird to kind of not tell the whole story. I mean, like, you know, my mom, uh, some of my mom's addiction issues are in the book. And it's sort of like, well, how do you write about your mom giving you Viagra if you don't tell how she got the Viagra, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think maybe it was me just being way too literal about like, about it all and being like, well, I don't really have an imagination. I don't know how this would work if we erased the part where my mom has cancer and was addicted to fentanyl and, you know, and different opioids. Like, I don't know how you would tell the story without that part. But, you know, so I think overall, I think that it let me drop so much of my personal anger and baggage that I didn't even know that I held um, against, you know, different people in my life. But it is this funny thing where, you know, I've kind of like dropped my baggage and I'm like, okay, cool. Like we can now exist all on an equal footing. I've had my say, you know, and then, you know, people in my life are like a little bit on their back foot, like, wait a minute. Like I thought you were the, you know, you were like the middle child invisible one in this situation. Like, what are you even, (laughs) this is how you felt this entire time. But um, I think it's, you know, I think that so many of those cliches, that are in movies about disabled and queer people, like being the sidekick, being the best friend, being there to teach, you know, the able-bodied or straight people lessons about the world. So many of those cliches exist in families too, and Mm. in communities. And I think one thing I am proud of with this book is that I think that it kind of breaks through that after-school special disabled people you know, are not sexual, they're here Mm -hmm. to serve you, 
I think it kind of breaks through some of those tropes just by kind of going hard. Like I sort of like that, <laughs> yes, yes. you know, booksellers are occasionally like booksellers who really like the book are occasionally like, you know, this is like quite graphic and explicit <laughs> and it's like David Sedaris, but there's a lot more anal sex in it. And yeah, um, yeah. I actually really love that because I kind of thought not that I mean, not that I was consciously thinking all this as I was writing it, but it's sort of like my community like they deserve me to go hard. Like if I have this opportunity, they kind of like, you know, it's like, well, my family can take it, you know, they deserve me to go hard because we haven't gotten that many chances to tell our stories, you know? And so to sort of tell kind of like a PG sort of like, I'm not a celebrity. Like I don't need to like whitewash, <laughs> you know, whitewash sure. things in the book. Like I'm not going to like lose a, I'm not going to like lose like a billion dollar, you know, TikTok or Amazon <laughs> contract by like, you know, writing something in a book. So I think, um, so yeah, I mean, it hasn't been just like total kumbaya, but even like, you know, Chip, who's a character in the book, um, who's my best friend with whom I experiment with the Brookstone back massager as we discover ourselves <laughs> as boys. And, you know, I poke a little fun at him. I mean, he, his wife and both of his parents came to my reading in Salt Lake City, you know, oh. after having read the book. And, like, my LDS sixth grade teacher came to my <laughs> reading in Salt Lake City. So I think that sometimes as a, you know, marginalized in some ways person, it's easy to kind of be like, the world is against me. You know, nobody, like, I'm going to lose so many friends from writing this book. Everyone's going to kind of, like, hate me now. And um, nobody has. I mean, I maybe... Yeah, maybe I've kind of been lucky. And it's not to say that you shouldn't write a book that, I mean, I'm not saying that you should write a book that everybody is comfortable with. That's not like the point. And I hope that's not the book that I've written. But yeah, I think that people can be more generous than you're thinking they're going to be. Like, for example, I gave my friend John, who's in the book, I'm still friends with him today. And you're smirking because, you know, friend is like a loose, you know, in, <laughs> you know, in, in high school, I was basically in love with him. He was this straight rock nerd who would come play ping pong at my house late at night after I'd hung out with his cool drinking buddies. And so, <laughs> you know, I was just his like conversation buddy but I had like a giant crush on him and you know so I was really nervous about him reading the book and you know just for example you know in kind of detailing the history of disability in my life and in my family and among my friends John happens to have a stutter and he had one as a child he's since largely you know it's it's hardly even detectable now um so it's not something he seems to, you know, demonstrably struggle with often, like, like, you know, when we're hanging out, or when he's, you know, saying his wedding vows or something, he's not, he's not struggling with that that much. So there is that element of it. But I mean, I felt like, you know, I felt sort of, God, I really want to explain to John, why I included his stutter in the book, like why mm -hmm. that was an important through line that, you know, he had a disability as well that he was grappling with kind of on his own terms and that story isn't mine to tell but the part that is mine to tell is the part of him <laughs> coming over and playing ping pong with me yeah. you know but I think grappling with issues like that where you're sort of like 
I don't want to whitewash this and sort of be like, this person that I love, you know, has a stutter. I mean, like, can we just live in a world where the hot guy has a stutter and that he's, you know, still like I'm still obsessed with him and, and that I love <laughs> his stutter? You know, can we kind of live in that world instead of sort of, yeah. So I think that I guess, though, what it's asking is kind of for other people to shed their shame a little bit and kind of be vulnerable with me, um, which is honestly a, a big ask of, of, you know, a community, which is why I changed some of the, some, you know, some of the names and stuff in the book are changed. But I think ultimately, I hope that it's a relief for those people too, because I think that when we can shrug off some of the ableism that we all have and, and are not carrying some of the, some of the shame that an ableist society kind of puts on our shoulders. Mm -hmm. I think it's a relief for everybody. So I kind of hope that me being vulnerable allows other people to be vulnerable too. No, I think that's such an astute point because I think like something I've learned from my life is just like, no, I've got to say it. Like what I'm thinking of, you know, how my queerness or how my disability like interact within the system, like it only, things only progress through like, openness and honesty about like the actual realities of these situations because otherwise you're just like everything comes off as polished which i think is a problem that a lot of memoirs tend to have is like all of the characterables characters are likable the the protagonist the person writing the book doesn't embarrass themselves too often or they don't really get into some of like the darkest things that they're thinking or experiencing and we have this like, I think where it is both, like, literary polished in the, you know, in, you know, most people have an editor, but then you also polish, like, the actualities of life, and your book doesn't, doesn't really do that. It's really well written, and it's great sentence structures and all that, but when it comes to, like, the characters and the storytelling and, and the openness with which you, like, deal with these complex stories of everyone has an unrequited love at some point, and you tell those stories, and you talk about the messiness of family and addiction of disability. Like there's, those are the moments that you can feel like, because that's what anyone that has lived a life that has involved any of these <laughs> categories of living. We understand those. We like, we resonate with those things, but something I did want to ask because <laughs> your book came out right around uh, pride. It's got a nice uh, naked man on the cover with, Pink on Pink. It's a really gorgeous cover, by the way. I think that's, I wasn't sure about it at first. Like, and then as I read the book, I was like, this is the perfect cover for the book. But my question is, your book, and probably because of a good, a good amount of anal sex involved in the storytelling, it might end up on some ban lists. Has that been something that you've kind of thought possible? Or, or have you thought of, you know, what you would say if that happens? Because I mean, book banning is just becoming more and more of a prevalent thing. And you wrote what I hope is going to be a very successful disability and queer memoir that uh, people are going to take offense to. Um, mm -hmm. They're not right to. Um, but this is a society we live in. And I think that's probably an interaction you will have at some point, whether it's, uh, you know, a petition or you get a horrible email at some point. You know, it's just pr kind of one of the realities of publicly telling the truth and, and the realities. So I'm just curious, how have you felt about that 
potentially happened? Has it maybe happened at all if you want to share any of that? Or uh, how do you think you'll handle it in the future if it does happen? You know, it hasn't happened yet. I grew up in, you know, a public school, or I went to a public school in the suburbs of Salt Lake City. So the most kind of corn-fed, predominantly white Mormon culture that you could imagine. And it was a culture of censorship. I remember my just beloved high school English teacher, Mrs. Thackeray, who I'm still friends with and, and read the book, you know, she read the book and everything. She wanted to teach Beloved in our AP American Literature or whatever the course was called, AP English class in, I guess it would have been 2003. Um, so not like ancient history, but a, a while ago. And it would be the, you know, it was the first year that she wanted to teach it. And some kids, you know, refused to read it basis of there being, quote, bestiality in the book. I think it, at one point, some of the characters, you know, like have sex with a farm animal or something. I mean, it's like, you know, it's Toni Morrison, though. I mean, it's this is like the greatest book of the last hundred <laughs> Super years. Super profound you know? and important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so finding this basically complete bullshit reason to object to reading this book. So it's like, they went off and read like Gabe, David Copperfield. I was going to say Gabe, David <laughs> Copperfield, <laughs> David Copperfield in the library. And I think, um, but seeing the, um, just the, what a resolute champion my AP English teacher was. And people all, you know, all along the way um, in my upbringing in Utah were fighting for books. And one of my good friends from high school is named Orion. And he started a, like a sci-fi fantasy bookstore called The Legendarium in Salt Lake City. That's, you know, oh, that sounds so super queer, cool. <laughs> yeah, it's queer run. Um, it's I mean, they are the nerdiest people ever. They can talk to you ad nauseum about Lord of the Rings in like ways <laughs> that I'm just like, guys, like, I mean, you know, when I visited just a couple weeks ago, someone came into the store and was talking about a fitness podcast that he did that used Lord of the Rings um, it was like a Lord of the Rings fitness podcast. It's like, I'm like, <laughs> this is the nerdiest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. And I'm here for all of it. This is so beautiful. So all to say, I mean, there are such, I think growing up in a world where everything was so censored. So getting my hands on books like the old men on men anthologies that they used to put out or, you know, best gay poetry 2005 or any number of things. Those books were so meaningful to me. They were like foundational to my identity and the future that I could imagine for myself, you know, as a gay person. And so, you know, if you took one of those books away, I'd probably be the same person. But if you took all of those books away, I really don't know who I would be today. You know, mm -hmm. like if you, I came out because I watched the Angels in America HBO miniseries by Tony <laughs> Kushner. And I identified with all of the bad guys, like, you know, I was like, oh, this return, you know, this return missionary who's in a sham marriage, like, he's completely right. And Roy Cohen, you know, Ronald Reagan's henchman, you know, like, I agree with what he's saying about the, the gay movement. And then I had this moment where I was like, whoa, this is wild. I, I know that I'm gay and I'm closeted. This was my freshman year of college. Like, I should not be siding with the bad guys here. So that's why I came out of the closet, because I was so profoundly moved by Angels in America and, you know, went on that journey with those characters and came out the other end a different person. 
you know, so it is a little bit, it is scary because, you know, it's like, if you're not, if you're not like a celebrity or this isn't like, you know, you're not writing like a, a mega book, you know, book bans would really hurt a book. And, um, you know, for as many fierce champions as there are out there, libraries are not only vital, you know, resources for communities, but for authors, a library, I think, you know, like the Austin public library system here, I think has like five copies of leg. So if a library with that level of purchasing power can't buy your book, that's going to like ding your sales, (laughs) you know, which is the, and the, the sales aren't the important part. It's, it's more how do queer authors then make a, you know, a viable income and kind of make a living out of what we're doing, let alone the reader component of it, which is those ideas don't get shared and passed along. So, you know, yeah, I'm actually glad that you kind of put that in my head to be sort of prepared for, you know. <laughs> I'm sorry, email. I'm not trying no. to jinx anything or anything No, like it's that. so true, though. It's, you know, I want to be prepared for it because I'm sure that it'll hurt a lot, even if I go in knowing that it might happen. And yeah, I, I was surprised though. Like I, one of my, um, one of my husband's best friends from college, her mom is a Baptist minister and she read my book and was talking to me about it this weekend. And she, and granted, you know, this is, I mean, this is a very liberal, it's a, a female Baptist minister. So, and she's very liberal and very intelligent and she's lived in Hungary. She's had a pretty, uh, you know, a pretty interesting life. So granted, this is not like all Baptists ministers, but she's, you know, she said, Hey, I loved your book. I thought it was like very redemptive. And, um, Mm. you know, I mean, I don't know, she tied it into her faith and kind of how God works through people. And I mean, I'm completely butchering her, her (laughs) beliefs, but you know, I was so encouraged to be able to connect with her on that level and that she saw some of what I was going for, you know, that my family and I had been through all this stuff, but hopefully by the end, there's, you know, you're coming to a place of some kind of redemption, some kind of understanding, some kind of deeper and more meaningful way to exist in the world. And so, yeah, but of course that won't be everybody's reaction. Not with the naked man on the cover. I think that's all the more reason to pick it up. It's a gorgeous book that people should definitely add to their bookshelves. Like I said, I really enjoyed this book. I think it's just a really readable and enjoyable and honestly, very, very deep and very thoughtful memoir that I hope everyone will go pick up. If you haven't already, um, check out Leg by Greg Marshall. I always end my podcast with asking for uh, book recommendations from the person that I'm interviewing. This could be, I don't know if these are books that you... um, read to research kind of your own process or whatever, but I'd love to know what you'd recommend to people. Sure. Um, so I have three books I'd like to recommend. One is uh, Just By Looking At Him by Ryan O'Connell. And Ryan O'Connell is the person behind Special, the Netflix series. And he was also oh, okay. on Queer as Folk in, as both an actor and a writer. Um, and he, so, th- so this is his novel that just came out in paperback, but it's about a TV writer um, who is starting to become involved in a relationship with a sex worker. And he it's sort of about his TV writing career, Hollywood, ableism in Hollywood, and then also his 
reckoning with his own sexuality and it is laugh out loud funny (laughs) it's profound i think as a person with cp there are some scenes in it um kind of in the bedroom that just really resonated with me um the character elliot kind of talks about the desire to top in the book and kind of the role that his cerebral palsy kind of plays in the bedroom and in kind of pursuit of him becoming a slut in in his words in the character's <laughs> words so it's very funny the other book uh, is the bandit queens by Prina oh, Shroff. went all over the place it's yeah. such a cool cover yeah so it's it's this hilarious and dark romp through a rural indian village where um a bunch of women want to hire this woman to help kill their husbands but it's it's got it's full of hijinks and heart and kind of this um, really fresh take on female friendship. But it also has so many of the pleasures of going to a place, going to a part of the world through reading that I'd never been. And so it really is such a fun summer read. And then the last one that I thought I'd recommend was um, Impossible People by Julia Wirtz. It's um, a graphic novel. This is. I believe maybe her third or fourth book. And Julia is, she uh, she does comics for The New Yorker. The book is about her struggle with alcoholism, and, mm-hmm. but it's a very unconventional take on it. And it's also about being an artist in New York and kind of the, the poverty and the boredom and the sense of camaraderie and, you know, bad romances that kind of go off the rail and off the rails. And, um, you know, it's also very much a book about her family. Uh, Julia's brother is um, in recovery. And so they have a really beautiful relationship that kind of reminded me in a weird way of like me and my dad's relationship in my book where we, you know, my dad and I both had disabilities and Julia and her brother were both grappling with recovery and kind Mm -hmm. of like what that what that looked like for them and the wisdom that they could kind of share with each other. So those were three books uh, that I that I just loved that I would highly recommend. No, those all sound so fascinating. Yeah, so pick up those, pick up Leg. Greg, where can people find you online? Oh, um, so my Instagram is Greg from a leg. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you can find me there and I'm on Twitter at Greg R. Marshall. So you can you can find me there. I'm not on Facebook uh, because I went to school with lots of conservative people who <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like happens. to share their opinions with me, and I was it like, I can't. An absolutely do this ruined anymore. platform. <laughs> well, thank you, Greg, so much for coming on the show. I'm gonna include a link in the description for this book. Yeah, thank you so much. I I really enjoyed this chat. Oh, thank you. This was wonderful. Thanks everyone for tuning in for another episode of Schizophrenic Reads. Uh, We'll be back next week with another book. And I'm not going to tell you because I like to keep some surprises. If you want to support this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash schizoreads. And this podcast was produced and edited by Tone Support. Find out more about all of these things in the bio below. Thank you. Mm -hmm.